Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, it's the day after, the day after the elections. Clay Jenkinson is joined by Lindsey Chervinsky, and they discuss the elections and what we found out so far. Trying to be nonpartisan to the extent possible, we tried to analyze the dynamics of one of the most interesting elections of my lifetime. And as we all know, uh, the country still remains fundamentally divided. The party in power usually loses a tremendous number of seats in the House of Representatives. That didn't happen. But as of this airing, we don't know who will control the Senate or who will control the House. But it was a bit of a message to both the leaders of the Republican and the Democratic Party. I guess in a way, everybody won something. It felt a little bit more normal than the experiences we've had in the last few years. It made me a little nervous, I have to say. Please join us for all that and more, a discussion on the election of 2022 on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, you had, it is said, a deep optimism in human reason and in the will of the people. And, sir, we've just completed an election with... Millions of Americans voting, and of course, winners and losers, both candidates and voters. You believed in what you called, and I'm quoting your words, sir, an absolute acquiescence in the decisions of the majority. Could you explain to us citizens why you feel this is so important? One of the greatest breakthroughs in the history of political thinking has been majority rule that we can't have unanimity on some subjects, perhaps none, but we can have a consensus where possible, but a simple majority must be treated like a national consensus. That's the only way our system can be stable. Sometimes one party is going to get its way and sometimes the other, but it's in our interest to, to embrace once the decision has been made through voting systems, either voting in the House and the Senate or in the state capitals, or in this case, voting by the people at elections. And I do believe in the capacity of humans to govern themselves. I never despaired of that. Even in the most difficult moments of my life, I maintained this fundamental optimism. I believe that man is a rational creature. We don't always behave rationally, but we are capable of rationality, and the purpose of education should be to strengthen that muscle so that we can be rational more of the time than we would be if we simply lived in a state of nature. You're speaking about a form of persuasion, sir. You you also wrote, quote, what has been the effect of coercion to make one half of the world fools and the other half hypocrites? So you did believe in persuasion, correct? Yes, of course. If I can't persuade a majority of people to follow my policies with respect to foreign affairs or internal improvements or the banking system of the country, then I deserve to lose. That all ideas require persuasion. Almost no idea is automatically the right one. And so if you lose, it means you haven't been persuasive enough, or it may mean that your ideas are not in harmony with the will of the people. And I can't say 
more emphatically that it is in the interest of government to acquiesce always in the decided will of the people. The people may not be right. The people will sometimes go wrong, but we must acquiesce in their will. It's not for the guardians, the representatives and senators, to believe they know more than the American people. Their duty is to represent the will of the people as they discern it and to try to persuade people if they think they're wrong. Mr. Jefferson, is a very wise advice, but in my time, sir, I don't know if it was the same during your time, but there is a, a battle against those who win from those who lose when it comes to politics. I'm not certain how we solve that, sir. Well, the stakes are high in your time. You're not only a great and wealthy nation, but the most important nation in the world. So the stakes are extremely high. The amount of money that floats through Congress means corruption is almost inevitable, that these are not simple matters of a simple agrarian republic. These are matters of an advanced commercial materialist empire. And therefore, it's not at all surprising that the passions run as high and as deep as they do. But you must adjust to whatever the situation happens to be, whether you like it or not, and find ways to bring as much enlightenment and good sense to your public councils as possible within the limits of your national citizenship. Well, finally, Mr. Jefferson, I know you would wish the winners well and hope that they uh, are gracious in their victories. The winners should be gracious and to reach out to those who lost and embrace their views to the extent that it makes sense, and the losers must concede graciously. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, sir. citizens and welcome to this week's edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We're so pleased to welcome back Lindsay Chervinsky this week and of course we are also joined by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. I'm your host David Swenson and this week you too have chosen to talk about the election, not surprisingly. Uh, we're recording this program the day after the elections, November 9th, 2022. And I have a list of, of points that you'd like to touch on. But before we go there, if I might, I have an email from Casey Davis, who is a junior in high school at South Hart Public School in North Dakota. And she says that her class listened to your discussion. The two of you talked about the election of 1800 a couple of weeks ago. And her question is, and this sort of ties into this week's subject, how different do you think our country would be if Hamilton hadn't spoken up and Burr had won the election of 1800 instead of Jefferson? Could you take a minute or two and answer her question? First of all, I am delighted that the class is listening to the program. That is such a wonderful thing to hear. And I am so glad that it is a helpful resource for teachers. So yay all around. Um, 
what a delight. I think that had Burr ended up winning or being selected, perhaps, by the House of Representatives is a better way to put it, that there would have been much less emphasis placed on constitutional norms. It would have devolved into a much more political or perhaps partisan is the better way to put it, system much quicker because I think that Hamilton got a lot of things wrong, but I think his assessment of Burr that Burr was first and foremost interested in his own future is an accurate assessment. And so he would have been much less concerned with values and norms and constitutional dictates and much more concerned with getting what he wanted the way he wanted it. What do you think, Clyde? It would have changed the way our Constitution creates presidents. The Founding Fathers did envision a role for the House of Representatives. Fortunately, that's almost never happened in our history. Uh, We have a much more clear-cut system until the last five or six years in which two candidates vie for the presidency. The winner is gracious towards the loser. The loser gives a concession speech. Um, The idea that sometimes we just wouldn't have a decision and that it would be thrown into the House of Representatives where the states would vote um, by state, not by representative, that is a quite plausible constitutional mechanism. Apparently, the Founding Fathers contemplated that this might be, I don't know about routine, but it might occur with some frequency. Fortunately, the Federalists gave up. In 1801, Jefferson was duly installed as president, and then we were off and running on a much more stable system in which the House played almost no role. Um, I think it would have been a very different country, um, closer to a parliamentary system, if the House had wound up having that as a routine role, David. Well, very good. And, And again, that question came from Casey Davis. She's a junior in high school at South Hart Public School. And I'm with you, Lindsay. I'm so delighted that that they listened and and that we got this email from her. So on to this week's chosen subject. And before we start, I think it's worth noting that there was, according to an article in the New York Times, there was $16.7 billion spent on the elections this year. And, you know, for perspective, according to what I found, we've sent $12.5 billion in weapons and other supplies to Ukraine. So your first point, Clay, was that most administrations lose big in off-year elections. Clinton lost 54 congressional seats. Obama lost 63. So it's 2022. What happened? It's complex. I'm not sure we know yet quite what happened, but I think uh, this much is true, that this was not so much pro-Biden and pro-Democrats as it was enough already on election denial And I think there's a very, very strong Roe v. Wade dynamic in this, too. In other words, I think we're in a sort of um, unique moment that normally presidents do lose a bunch of seats in the House and sometimes in the Senate. I expected that to happen. I don't think that the nation has really um, embraced Joe Biden's narrative And I think, frankly, the Democrats have been weak at trying to tell the story of what it is they want to accomplish with power. And I think that they were in a position to lose, especially given severe economic strain. I went to the grocery store yesterday, 
And I was, I was actually shocked by the amount of increase in prices for basic things that have occurred in the last year. I've been gone for almost six weeks in, in Europe, and so it really hit me extremely hard. And so I think that we should have expected the Democrats to lose 30, 40, or 50 seats, at least 30, I would say. Um, instead, it's, it's, it's a dead heat. I think the Republicans will take control of the House of Representatives and the Senate, not so sure. But I think the factor, and I'm so interested in Lindsay's point of view on this, is that other dynamics were going on. And I think that there was a, a fairly stern rebuke. And I think that Roe v. Wade touched a very deep chord in the idea that I should be left alone by government. And I think that that's going to turn out to have been maybe the decisive factor. What say you, Lindsay? Well, I think we should start by saying that when we're recording this, it's the afternoon of November 9th. So we still don't know the results of some of the Nevada races, a lot of the California races, of course, the runoff that seems to be coming in Georgia, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's still some things that are to be determined. And then, of course, once we actually get how the votes broke down, we can have a better sense of which specific groups went to specific regions. And I think for me, the biggest takeaway from this election is that our conceptualization of how our political system works and what our expectations should be and how we frame our thinking about polls and opinions and what are the possibilities is very antiquated. We are still operating as though it is a early 2000s system, and that is not actually the system we are living in. And one of the reasons that had such a big impact yesterday is, first of all, there are far fewer seats that are even competitive than in times like Clinton's presidency. And that's largely because of gerrymandering on both sides. Second, because there are so many fewer seats that are actually competitive. And in 2020, although the Democrats took the Senate and won the presidency, Republicans did actually pick off a lot of the weak seats in Democratic seats in the House. There just wasn't that much space for flip. So I think the concept that there would have been a 40 seat loss might not be something that we're dealing with right now, especially with the intense partisan division. So that's kind of my overall sense of where we are as an environment. However, that being said, there were clearly still seats that were vulnerable seats that ended up staying with the Democrats. And I think that you are correct that there are sort of two factors at play. One, the Republican Party, in a lot of cases, selected very extreme candidates within their pool of candidates. It's someone who was on the more extreme side of the possibilities. That is, of course, going to inherently appeal to fewer people because they are a more radical position. And many of them adopted radical sort of election denial ideas, which I think even if someone is a true dead-in-the-world conservative or a true dead-in-the-world Republican, that notion still feels anti-democratic to a lot of people, and so it's off-putting. The second factor, I think, is oftentimes this big blowback that we see in after the first couple of years of an administration is a response to the party in power. But because of the Roe versus Wade decision, it's it felt harder, I think, for voters to say that Democrats are fully in power when a Supreme Court that's dominated by Republican appointees 
put out this position that was so dramatic. And so I think that that kind of, it's not only that it's the personal freedom of the decision that was off-putting to a lot of people, but it is the political dynamic behind it. Both of you have brought up election deniers, and but as you say, Clay, in this Our Happy Republic, there was little or no violence. Now, there is some election denying going on, but and there's been some pretty dramatic and eloquent concessions that have gone on, but no violence, no craziness at the polls, as far as I know. Well, I think that the denial that President Trump engaged in after he lost the election of 2020 was tied to a specific moment. So if you take a routine governorship race, uh, say in Illinois um, or Arizona for that matter, uh, it's more likely that there will be normal responses. We're still going to get a little of this. But I think that we had a person in Donald Trump who knew he lost the election, who uh, talked himself into believing that the election was stolen, who was willing to bring down the republic if necessary to stay in power. It's not that there aren't some other people who got involved in that. I think Trumpism is a very strong factor and some people are still in hypnosis. But I think most others live in a more real world, David, and they are actually, uh, they understand that you can lose an election by 250 votes and you, you might want a recount, but if the recount affirms the original uh, vote, it's probably over. And so I, I think that we passed through the worst of this era. I hope so. Lindsay? Boy, I hope you're right. I mean, I, I would say that typically the violence does not come on the day of an election. So January 6th was much later. I am hopeful that once all the voting is done later this week, there will not be any violent pushback to that. I was very heartened to see that people on both sides did concede and offer congratulations where appropriate. So that was, I think, a very good sign. I was also very encouraged that a lot of judges took a pretty firm line on any intimidation attempts by poll watchers to intimidate voters. I think that that needs to be nipped in the bud immediately. I am, I think, more concerned about political violence generally than I am per se about just the election. Of course, the attack on Paul Pelosi is a good example of this. I'm I'm hopeful that there's nothing more, but I think that that is naive. And I think, unfortunately, the likelihood of there being ongoing violence in that way in the coming years remains pretty high. Well, I, boy, I certainly hope you're wrong. I do too. We shall see. Uh, we do need to take a short break. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, the day after, the day after the 2022 elections, we're speaking with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and our special friend and often guest, Lindsay Chervinsky. And I want to go on to something that both of you have mentioned, and that is what I like to refer to as women's rights, Roe versus Wade, and how that affected the election and and a lot more than many pundits thought it was going to, it turns out. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that has been a silver lining to the last couple of months is a lot of people have had earnest conversations about what Roe v. Wade actually means and that abortions are often healthcare. They're not actually choices that people make. Sometimes they are, but sometimes it's a miscarriage that has gone wrong and a woman's life is at stake. Or sometimes it is an ectopic pregnancy, which is when the fertilized egg resides in the fallopian tube and it absolutely cannot be carried to term in any way. And so I think there's been a a good conversation that this is a much more all-encompassing issue about healthcare and the importance of, you know, doctor's ability to attend to a mother's life or a woman's life. And so I think that because of that conversation, a lot of people have come to see the stakes of the decision very differently than just, oh, if I get pregnant, do I want to actually keep this pregnancy? And that has been shocking for a lot of people. And I think that shock to the system is what we're seeing in some of the votes thus far and, and some of the there are some referendums on particular in particular states as well and those have so far all gone in one direction and i think it's because there's this recognition that it is a, a much bigger issue and also i think an awareness that it was easy for people for a long time to say like oh well you know whatever i'm pro-life or i'm pro-choice or what have you. But then once the decision is actually in front of you, it becomes a much more pressing concern and something that I think a lot of people brought with them into the voting box. I could not agree more. I had a conversation with my daughter, Catherine, on the streets of London and about this. And I, I want to start by saying that I am have deep personal ambivalence about abortion, um, very deep. Uh, angst about it. Uh, so we were talking, and I'm I'm pro Roe. Uh, I think we should have just left this alone. If we had left it alone, I think we would be in a much better position than we are. I think almost all women are extremely reluctant to have abortions, and I think the idea, the caricature that the right and the evangelicals have put forth that abortion is some sort of a lazy woman's choice not to take responsibility for her intimate life. And that's, uh, of course, that might be the case in a handful of situations, but for the most part, that's not what brings on an abortion. And this is the law of unintended consequences. We now know ectopic pregnancies. We know pregnancies in which we learn that the child is uh, going to have profound uh, birth defects. We learn about the uh, impairing the the health and the safety and security of the mother. Uh, we learn about uh, people that accidentally get pregnant in spite of practicing good birth control at a time when it would be profoundly difficult for them to carry a child uh, into life because of maybe the loss of, of, of work or uh, other conditions. 
And so these things are, are things we didn't particularly talk about on the other side of the Supreme Court decision. But now we're seeing case after case where you have to open your eyes and realize it is dramatically more complex than we thought it was. And so I was talking about to my daughter and saying, you know, I, I can understand. I'm re- I have some real reluctance about late-term abortions and so on. She said, and she was very stern with me, very stern. And she said, grow up, do some research. There are very few late-term abortions, number one. Number two, the idea of partial birth abortion, it's largely mythic. And th- these are a tiny handful of cases in a very unusual circumstances that the evangelical community seizes upon and tries to suggest are normal human behaviors. And you need to stop, you know, she said, I know you always want to bend over to try to accommodate points of view that are not your own, but stop. You need to realize that this is putting enormous hardship on families. And this really is, it turns out, about a woman's health. It's not about a woman's pregnancy per se. Sometimes it is. More often, it's about a much wider set of dynamics and consequences. And so, you know, we don't, we almost never dispute, but, but she really read me the riot act. And, you know, I'm convinced by what she said more passionately, but what Lindsay has just said more rationally, which is that if you think abortion is just a, an act of um, unwillingness to, to have a baby, you haven't really begun to think about this question. Way to go, Catherine. I, it's more proof that you have a brilliant daughter. I, I hope she's listening. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I love that. I love that so much. I um, I have a friend who had to have a late-term abortion or what would be considered a late-term abortion, and the baby was desperately wanted. Uh, she's There's a family. It was There was so much excitement. It was planned for, and the baby didn't develop critical organs in, in a way that was not you cannot fix. There was there was no medicine that would fix it. There was no solution. And she was basically going to be killed if this baby continued to poison her system. And that is a horrific situation that no one wants. And if she had had to wait for a board to approve that, it would have caused even more anguish and pain. And I think those are the types of stories that need to be heard because it is such a complex and personal and deeply intimate decision. Absolutely. I'm sorry, but it's just, we we don't want to get stuck here, but it, with all the other things going on in a story like that, to think that one of the things you have to factor in is, will I be arrested? Will I go to prison? Uh, you know, am, am I going to be a felon for uh, attending to my basic health and safety? Uh I think what we're learning is that this decision was, I think the decision was was a was 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 badly thought out, and that it it really does takes metaphysics to get to the position the judge the Justice Alito came to, going back to the 13th century uh, for citations. But I also think that these people have been fixated on this one idea, which is to outlaw abortion in America, and they haven't thought through the wide range of reasons why a woman might need to have an abortion. And I think we're seeing this now. And I think that it is tragic, and people are are uh, passionate about it, and they're making their views known. And notice that in we're ta- we've been talking about 
representatives and senators and governors and so on. But in the in the measures about abortion rights uh, that were in the election, all of them came out on the side of freedom for women and against the capacity of the state to make these decisions. And so it wasn't one and a half to one and a half or two to one. It was three to zero on this. And in some states like Kentucky uh, that are quite uh, conservative and evangelical. My last word on this, if I could have it, please. Uh, and it really comes from listening to the two of you discuss this. You know, I don't look at it so much as a one issue discussion. This is a discussion about people's rights and all of us enjoy only the rights that the least of us do. And I'm not sure if voters look at it that way or not, but I certainly do. You both mentioned Trump in passing. Um, you know, there's always a lot of drama connected with political parties. Uh, we know that. But looking at the Republican Party, and do you think Trump is is somewhat in the rearview mirror at this point? He's had some challenges. Well, I think we're headed for a bit of a reckoning because— I think it was clear based on the results that we know thus far that candidates, many of the candidates that he handpicked or selected did not do as well as some of the other maybe more traditional Republican candidates. And he has an awful lot of legal troubles that are going to be coming down the road and, of course, the baggage of having run and lost and have a track record of losing a fair number of seats um, in the Senate or gubernatorial races or state legislatures. Uh, and yet, I think he's made pretty clear that he doesn't want to go away um, and would very much like to continue to participate in the political system. And in fact, there's seems to be a, a good amount of reporting that he's planning an announcement on November 14th or 15th to announce his candidacy. And yet, on the other hand, uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida had a very good night last night. He won a resounding victory and appears to be in a pretty strong position and appears to want to run. Now, I don't know if he will outright challenge Trump, but it, it appears to me that there is at least a bit of a reckoning there, and they clearly do not like each other. So they're not going to be inclined to help one another. So I think that for better or for worse, Trump is not going to be going off into the sunset anytime soon. That doesn't necessarily mean he will be the Republican candidate, but I don't think that he is going to disappear. So Trump won the election of 2016. In 2018, he was thumped pretty hard in the midterm elections. In 2020, he was defeated decisively by Joe Biden, who was very far from being an ideal candidate. Now in 2022, he hasn't been thumped but it hasn't been a great election for him. There's there's some indication that his uh, capacity to will his way through uh, candidates has diminished. But I would never write Trump off. I feel certain that he's going to be around for the next five or six years. He is going to make havoc in the Republican Party because he's going after DeSantos. And so they're going to be caught in a very vicious internal dispute. And this is really going to test people because so many Republicans who are what I would call soft MAGA, they love Trump, of course. They understand that he's a problematic figure, but they love him and they have supported him. But they also realize that Ron DeSantos is, is actually probably a better 
um, embodiment of their will and, and is more likely to get their will accomplished in the uh, constitutional system. And so they're trapped. They're trapped between a deep loyalty to Donald Trump, but an understanding that he is diminished and that he's certainly a problematic figure and uh, a kind of less cultish, less hypnotized um, admiration for Ron DeSantos and others uh, that is going to just tear them apart, it seems to me. And so if you're a Democrat, this is good news. I don't think it's particularly good news for our republic, but I will never write Donald Trump off. He is um, he's an amazingly powerful, charismatic, magnetic force in American life. People used to think Bill Clinton was that. Bill Clinton is is uh, is a much more rational human being in some respects, but Bill Clinton doesn't have that. And I think that Trump is going to be a disruptor, to use that current um, cliche, um, until his health breaks. And I think that's four, five, six years from now. Well, the two of you have walked into the next point, which is that the country remains fundamentally divided. Um, I read an article in The Atlantic, uh, The Divided States of America by David Graham, and he says, quote, frantic partisan combat and frequent changes of power are the new normal. But I'm talking to two eminent historians. Is it really new? Well, we've certainly had moments of intense partisan divide that we currently have. I think what's unusual about this moment for those of us who are living through it is that basically candidates have a set ceiling and they have a set floor in terms of the number of votes they can get and their popularity. And that's because someone of the opposite party is not going to approve of them and is not going to vote for them, but someone of their own party is not necessarily going to vote for the other side. So Whereas we used to have, like, if you had a candidate that was clearly unqualified, had tons of scandals, um, you know, caught lying, red-handed, things like this, it, it would mean the end of their campaign. And that no longer is the case because of that very strong floor. There have been times in the past where this has been the case. So um, the 1960s were a particularly strong, divided period in terms of partisan division, the 1890s, uh, I would say the 1850s, I would say the Jacksonian era. Jacksonian supporters were diehard in their support for Jackson and his protégés, and of course the 1790s as well. And so the divide is not unusual. What is unusual is that it appears that there is at least a section of one party that wants to just destroy the institutions as opposed to just beat the other party. And that is what feels unique to me about this moment. I think what we're learning here, and, and thanks to Lindsay's uh, rapid survey of, of our political history, is that we've been living in an illusion for the past 30 or 40 years. We've lived in this kind of illusory world uh, where it's all, it runs like a student council election or something. And now we know it's been wild and crazy for most of American history. It's been much more volatile than we like to admit, that there have been other times where we've been in paralysis and the system is broken down or nearly broken down. And just looking at the election of 1800 is enough to remind you that our, our illusion about this is kind of a post-Berlin Wall illusion or post-Harry Truman illusion that 
that represents a, a very short period of American history and not even particularly accurately. So I'm with Lindsay. If you take a, a candidate like Herschel Walker in, in Georgia. Oh, you knew that's who I was referring to, huh? Why why is Herschel Walker even viable? I'll tell you why. Because he's a Republican, and that could maintain or, or re restore Republican majority in the United States Senate. Warnock is not exactly an ideal candidate either, but people are overlooking these grotesque problems in their lives because they're so bent on their tribal desire to win, to, to control. And so the idea that character matters is still a part of our system, but we are so fundamentally broken and divided now that it has eroded in a way that just makes you you shake your head. You know, if you if you look at the at the exit polling, the, the percentage of people who say the country is going in the wrong direction is very high. But what you realize is both parties are saying that, and then the, even more, Lindsay, you have these people saying. And I've heard them in the past five or six months that this could be the last election in America. And both sides are saying this. So we've reached this point now where each of the extreme edges of the parties demonize the other, say they're enemies. They're not really Americans. They're enemies within that if they have their way, they will destroy this country. And we may have to go to the streets a little less violently on the Democrat side, a little more violently on the Republican side to save the country. And when you get to that point where it's not just like, well, we disagree about tariffs and we disagree about abortion rights and we disagree about Ukraine and we disagree about infrastructure, but you know, we're all Americans. We all basically want the same thing here. We all believe in this country and we want it to thrive. And we understand that you can't have unanimity in a democratic system. That idea seems quaint today. It seems even ridiculous. We, we no longer have that idea that we're all Americans in, an, in a sense that's more important than any issue that we happen to be facing. And when I think of that, Lindsay, I just despair. We need to take a short break. Before we do, I, 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 you, you're talking about uh, fixing elections. And my, my favorite meme, maybe, maybe the two of you have seen it, is that, you know, vote for me. I'll fix the elections. I'll fix them so good you never have to vote again. I haven't seen that. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. You joke, but one of the candidates that was running for Secretary of State said that exact same thing. Thankfully, he was defeated. Maybe that's where it came from. Anyway, we need to take a short break, but we'll return to this conversation about the 2022 elections in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back, everyone, to this special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We're with Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky. It's the day after the 2022 election. It's November 9th, 2022. It turns out it's not election night. It's election week, maybe election month. We don't know at this juncture whether the Republicans will retake the House of Representatives. I'd say the chances are pretty high that they will, but not nearly by the spread that people had predicted. And we don't know yet whether the Republicans will regain control of the Senate. I'm guessing no, but it could go either way. And so we're in a really interesting kind of limbo here. One question that I have that we may not get to is what is wrong with California? I love California. California is one of the most extraordinary places on earth. They do so many things so well. Why can't they have a voting system? where you can learn the results of the election. It's nuts. I mean, California has mastered almost every institution of the United States. It's been the leader in all these ways, and now we're stuck and we're, we're being told it could be weeks before we know the results. They allow people to use mail-in ballots that are postmarked as late as Election Day, as long as they receive them within three days and... I think that's a big reason why. They're, they're not the only ones who are slow, too. I need to defend my home state here. Oh, here it, it has comes. Been, I didn't know you were from. Been... Where are you from in California? That explains everything. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Careful, sir. Watch your words. Don't, I'm from don't, East don't of San Francisco. Don't hang San... up, Lindsay. Please don't hang up. <laughs> I am from east of San Francisco. East? Oh, that's okay. great. That, that's a relatively... I know the, I know the area. Um, yes, yeah, so... But look... Uh, let her respond. I want not, well, I, I want you to be able to make your case for California, but but I, but while you're at it, go on and respond to what I said just before the break, which is that we are we're really two Americas now. We're an urban America and a rural America. We're a blue America and a red America, and seemingly paralytic way. So first of all, make the case for California's voting system. Can't wait to hear that, and then tell me what you think about this paralysis. Well, I should say first, I I also would like results with a little bit more quickness, if possible. The reason it takes so long is multifaceted. One, California does have very generous voting laws. The, it has the largest number of voters, and it has very permissive rules about who is eligible to vote. And then it also allows everyone to vote with a mail-in ballot which I personally think is fantastic. And the reason it's fantastic and the reason it takes so long is because then they're very diligent about making sure that they are, in fact, legitimate ballots. So as long as they are postmarked, as David said, they are checked, the signatures are checked. So there is a lot of security that goes along with this. It is not just a willy-nilly, you can create a ballot system from nothing. Um, and it is a big state, so sometimes it takes a while for ballots to be accumulated, what I wish that they could do a little bit more would be to do some advanced counting of the ballots that came in ahead of time so that those votes, usually those we get fairly quickly. But I think if we could do more of that, that would be helpful. Uh, they are, of course, not the only state that struggles with this. One of the races that we're keeping our eyes on, I believe, is is Nevada. And Nevada notoriously will not release a single vote result until every single person has cast their ballot that is in line. So I think the first votes didn't come out until after midnight last night. I get why they're doing it because they don't want to influence anyone, but it's a little frustrating. So I think that, you know, this is a work in progress, but it, I think it should be a work in progress because 
we have a constantly evolving society. We have new technology. There are, are new ways to process these things. And so we should be thinking about how can we make elections freer, fairer, and safer. And that means that sometimes it's going to take a while, but we need to continue to think about ways that we can make it more accessible and also faster so that there's less mudding of the waters. So that's my defensive cal. This takes us, by the way, back to the original question about the Republic. In Jefferson's time, you didn't find out the, the results on no, it took any months. day. They dribbled in over months. And months. Even when the Electoral College met, we didn't know. Yeah, it took months. So we're we're just really babies because we want results immediately. We're a very impatient society, uh, myself included. Um, I, I like to know things right away. Um, in terms of your concern about our division, I too share that concern. And it's not even so much for me that we feel like two countries, although I do, I do believe that is a real issue. It's something you talked about in terms of the language. I want listeners to be very attentive when they hear someone talking about an opponent as an enemy or as somehow categorizing them as other. That is language that is used to make you think of that person as not totally human and not deserving of the same rights and liberties and treatment as you. And it's a very intentional tactic that have been used by politicians for millennia. Um, it is something that people do when they are trying to get one group to turn on the other and to not respect the other as an opponent, but as an enemy. If someone is an enemy, then you can use violence against them. You can deprive them of their civil liberties. You can deprive them of their right to vote. You can deprive them of their right to freedom or home or shelter or humane treatment. And so that is, I or think, maybe their life or their life. This is what we really need to be on guard against because it is okay for people to disagree. It is okay for people to disagree on pretty much every issue under the sun. It is not okay in a democracy to treat someone who disagrees with you as a, as an enemy because Democracies are inherently messy. They're supposed to be messy. They're supposed to have a lot of different opinions. And while that sometimes feels annoying, that's actually what makes them stronger. Because if you have a lot of different opinions, you're going to have more innovation. You're going to have more opportunity. You're going to have better solutions to really difficult problems. And there's a reason that other democracies want each other to survive, and it's because it generally makes the world a better place. If people have the opportunity to live in a democracy, they want to do it. And so we just need to be really attentive to that. Speaking of presidents, um, you know, we have two de facto leaders. Uh, the Republicans have Mr. Trump and the Democrats have Mr. Biden. Um, I want to ask the both of you, what is the message that these two gentlemen should take away from the 2022 elections? I'll start with Trump. You know, we've been waiting for Trump to make a turn now for eight years. He isn't going to make a turn. He's not going to understand how a civic community really operates, but he needs to bring it down. He got a little bit thumped here. The, the nation said, you know, okay, we, we, may, we may still believe that the election of 2020 was, was irregular in some important way. But we can't live there. We can't live in that paradigm forever. We want to get back to some sort of much more routine way in which we um, pick winners and losers in our political system. And so, you know, if he if the feedback mechanism worked for him, if he were the kind of person who would actually hearken to what he's seeing out there, he would bring down this rhetoric and talk about issues. He hasn't had a new set of policy issues for a very long time. 
so that's one thing for Biden. I think this should not go to Biden's head. I don't think that this was uh, uh, an affirmation of Joe Biden or Bidenism. I think that this was really about other things and that what he needs to do is work as hard as he can in the next two years to get a lot more things done in the most bipartisan way that he possibly can, because I think he can help us move on as a nation. I think he's spent as a political force and that he should retire after a single term. But I think that he can still get a lot done uh, by putting forth rational arguments for rational policies that will help real people. And just to give you one example, the Republicans uniformly attack the infrastructure bills. The infrastructure bills are popular. The Democrats need to say, look, we gave you an infrastructure bill. Trump talked about it every week for his entire presidency and never even had hearings about one. You know, we deliver. You may not like what we deliver, but we deliver. We we deliver uh, answers and, and solutions to human problems, and that's what a government must do. What do the Republicans have except grievance, I think, is the, is the argument that the Democrats should be making. And the Republicans should be saying, now, we got to have some policies. We got to have a plan for inflation. We got to have a plan for jobs. Got to have a plan for infrastructure. We have to have a rational plan for the border. And if they did, I think people would hearken to those because there are fiscal conservatives who like answers to our problems but don't like the the wild spending of the Democrats. Let me take a, a test case as an example of what I think is a compelling message and one that should be employed by Biden. There are a couple of candidates that I was keeping an eye out for in particular that I think really should be the future of the Democratic Party, and they are... Abigail Spanberger and Alyssa Slotkin. Both were elected in 2018. They both come from military or national intelligence backgrounds, both one in very sort of moderate border districts. They have survived pretty tough elections. They are they are Democrats. They are are, are loyal Democrats to Biden and, and tend to vote with him, but they tend to be more moderate. Now that I think that they are pretty consistent on sort of the Democratic Party line in terms of things like abortion and voting rights and things like that, but they are also strong on national defense. They are able to talk to Americans of all types. So Abigail Spanberger's district encompasses both Fredericksburg, but also a very rural swath of Virginia. So talks to farmers and people who don't live in cities. They talk about real problems and solutions like trying to uh, negotiate the price of certain drugs like insulin. Like these are real concrete solutions that would make a big difference for average Americans. And that approach to politics, I think, is very appealing to a lot of people. They also both tend to be fairly bipartisan. So when things do get done in a bipartisan fashion, they're always at the center of it. This is the type of message that maybe isn't going to appeal to every district because, as we've discussed, there are lots of different types of Americans, but I think will appeal to the m most number of districts. And to me, that type of politics is hard to do in this day and age where we are very partisan and it's very easy to drive to the polls of the polls as in P-O-L-E-S rather than P-O-L-L-S. It's very easy to drive to the extremes 
they're resisting that and they're showing that it is a successful way to do it. And that is, I think, the message that really should be ideally should be adopted by both parties. But I don't see a whole lot of moderate Republicans having electoral success at the moment. Mm. And to me, lost in all of this is the importance of individual candidates. Mm. Candidate quality does matter. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, their own particular strengths and wisdoms. And you you talk about Trump and you you have to you have to recognize the guy is a charismatic figure. He knows how to gin up a crowd and, and explain things. And, you know, his personality, had he become what a lot of people thought he would after he was elected president, which was more centrist, more moderate, he would have had the ability to stay in office and change the country in in ways we can't imagine. So again, it's the strengths and weaknesses of particular candidates. You don't hear that discussed when you watch CBS or ABC or NBC Evening News. Um, you get a you get a, a newscaster on who says, "Oh, we've got a busy news night tonight," and you know, stress every number whether it's important or not. And it's I can't watch anymore. This morning I got up. I refused to watch any coverage last night. I got up this morning at 6.30 and I turned on Fox. And then I went to CNN and then I went to MSNBC. And you know what? They were all happy. Everybody won. And uh, so that, you know, maybe it was a good election. I think Hunter Biden might have won. It's less likely that, that he is the focus of massive numbers of uh, Republican-led investigations because of the relative truce, uh, the sort of not much changed nature of the election last night. You know, it's an interesting point. I've I've heard arguments both ways. I've heard arguments that if the Republicans had had a larger victory, then McCarthy, if he was selected leader, would have actually had more um, would have had more space and wiggle room to ignore some of the more crazy elements of his caucus and would have been able to push back on some of those things. And now because he's going to need every vote, he's actually going to be held captive to the demands and whims of every member. So I don't know what's what's going to be the outcome. And I don't know. We don't even know what's really going to be the outcome of the House at this point, or even if he's going to be leader, because I just saw an announcement that Steve Scalise has announced he will be running for majority mm-hmm. leader as well. So <laughs> I think we're headed for a very messy December. It reinforces my point about drama in the parties, I guess. David, you began by saying that this was $16.7 billion worth of electioneering. Right. I just want everyone to realize how obscene that is. Yep. Uh, the, the Other countries don't do it this way. The budget for the National Endowment for the Humanities is under $200 million. You know, we think of that. If we took $16.7 billion and, and created very, very entertaining civics engagement activities for the country as we, as we approach the 250th birthday of the United States, it would be infinitely better spent than in this way. And this, the, this is an oligarchical system, and both parties are responsible for it. Uh, and the Supreme Court, of course, in Citizens United, um, opened the doors, threw open the doors in a big way to this. But this is nothing less than pornographic, and it must be stopped. A, a great nation finds a way to, to create a meritocracy of some sort, and a meritocracy and $16.7 billion cannot be in the same sentence. You know, we're out of time for this week, but I've saved just enough 
for the both of you to do a recap. I think you kind of did, Clay, but uh, Lindsay, do you have any final thoughts? No, I couldn't agree more. It's impossible to have an electoral system when you either need to have personal wealth of your own or an ability to be bankrolled in such a way. And I think that that is inherently undemocratic. It's the, it's it's completely unique to our system. No other nations in the world do elections like this. And it just is a disappointment. And I hope that we can come up with a way that allows more Americans to participate and still have the freedom of speech and, and the right to participate and contribute to elections, but not be so tied to money. My last thought, David, is first of all, thanks to our good friend, Dr. Lindsay Trevinsky. We're always delighted to have your comments and we urge people to send in their uh, suggestions, opinions, responses, whatever they want to say helps us think about this program. I, I think what I want to say as we close is that we don't know how this election came out. Uh, it wasn't a disaster for the Democrats. That's all we can say at this moment. I think we don't know whether the Senate will be controlled by the Democrats or the Republicans. We don't know whether the House will be. There are some governor's races that are still very volatile. There's a lot still on the table and we're giving an instant analysis, we, thinking that we could really have something to say, but I don't think we know enough yet. But the idea, I saw all this celebration last night on, on, on MSNBC and CNN about how, oh, this is such good news, and gee, this is, you know, oh, thank goodness we dodged that bullet. I don't know that that bullet has necessarily been dodged, and I thought the smugness of being able to say, well, at least we didn't lose 50 seats was really unprofessional and not good journalism, even for partisan cable journalism. So uh, with that, we'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Thank you.